Dr. Amber Batson is my guest for the season finale of The Bitey End of the Dog, and what a way to top off the amazing lineup of experts this year. This episode is packed with mind-blowing insights from Dr. Batson on some hot topics, including the connection between microbiomes and behavior, rethinking the puppy socialization windows, and even the controversial topic of diet and aggression. And a very special thanks to all of you who have listened to, shared, or reviewed the podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated and truly motivates me to produce the show and learn along with you from the foremost experts on aggression from around the world. You can help to support the show by visiting aggressivedog.com, where there are a variety of options to learn more about helping dogs with aggressive behavior from industry experts. And if you haven't already registered, check out the second annual Aggression in Dogs conference happening from October 22nd to 24th, 2021 via live stream. This is going to be a truly unique event that's going to be streamed from a TV studio in Chicago. Think of it like a talk show blended with a dog behavior conference and a cocktail party. You won't want to miss this event. 12 amazing speakers all sharing their expertise on helping dogs with aggression. Go to thelooseleashacademy.com to register. Hey everyone, welcome back to the bitey end of the dog. I have a very, very special guest this week, Dr. Amber Batson, who's graduated from the Royal Veterinary College in 1999 and has worked in general practice ever since. She's always had a strong interest in behavior and has undertaken a number of qualifications and has been offering private consultations as well as teaching animal behavior for nearly 15 years. Amber strongly believes in looking at the whole animal, meaning that all aspects of the animal's life should be considered when a problem arises. And she spent most of the majority of her career managing her patients in such a way where possible, she has worked with dogs posing all levels of challenges. And we're going to dive deep into the topic of aggression. And that is something both Amber and I share a passion for. So welcome to the show, Amber. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. It's great to be here. Let's jump right into the differences between, you know, you're in the UK and we have some differences. And we were just chatting about this before. I started the record button about the differences in between the UK and the US in terms of what we're seeing in trends of how we're looking at behavior. And one of the things that I've noticed is that we've become very focused on the external environment for dogs here, meaning we're looking very much through an ABA lens. So we're looking at the environment, the antecedents, which is really important, of course, for understanding dogs. But I feel that some of the looking at the inside of the animals and that's where I'm going to be picking your brain on is about the neuroscience aspect and sort of the underlying motivations for behavior such as fear, anxiety, stress, arousal, and frustration. And I see that actually occurring more in the conversation over in the UK. Would you agree with that? And is that uh, it's sort of more centric to the conversation happening there? Yeah, I think so. I think it's certainly becoming so. I mean, we're quite lucky. We've got a um, number of universities with larger behavioural departments now than they used to be. So, you know, we're very lucky to have Daniel Mills heading up the team at Lincoln University. We've got John Bowen, um, you know, at at the Royal Veterinary College. Um, I'm going to miss some really important people out, so I apologise to those. You know, we've got some big uh, behaviour departments and they're, they're publishing now quite a lot of good quality research that really is looking at how the inside of the animal, you know, is influencing the brain, which motivates the behaviour. So. You know, I think that's probably why we're starting to see this this bigger shift here. So we're going to get into the meds next. Let's talk about behavior meds. But just so the listeners have an idea of how things work out in the UK, uh, trainers there have to be referred to for cases. Is that correct? Or is it, uh, can any trainer just take on any aggression case? Any trainer. Anyone can call themselves a trainer and uh, anyone can take on a case. Under the Veterinary Surgeons Act, we have a legislation which is that if an animal needs a diagnosis, you know, so if there's considered to be ill health, then a diagnosis needs to be made by a vet and a, a treatment plan needs to be prescribed by a vet. So, But that only applies if there's considered to be ill health. We have what anyone might perceive to be a healthy animal and is showing a behaviour problem, then that's outside the remit of the Veterinary Surgeons Act. So anyone can treat a problem. 
And I guess perhaps this whole thing about the intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation for behavior is highlighting that how unlikely it is that when you get a behavior as extreme as aggression often can be, that that animal probably isn't totally healthy, you know, and that we really do need to be working with qualified professionals and perhaps, you know, considering a multi-team approach between vets and behaviorists and perhaps some other professionals as well, as well as, you know, obviously the owner of the dog. So it actually sounds quite similar to what's happening in the US and that it's really anybody can take on a case and it's, which is a tragedy sometimes when we're seeing dogs that are suffering from an underlying medical condition that's not being diagnosed or at least worked with a veterinarian on and not being given the proper treatment. So I, I certainly advocate all the time for working with a veterinarian as a team approach. Uh, do you have a lot of trainers who work with, uh, you work with and that you refer to in your practice? I do personally, yeah. But then I guess I've been working in this kind of integrative, you know, integrating the mind and the body of an animal approach for almost 20 years, really. Whereas that's, I don't want to say unique because then that sounds, you know, egotistical. I don't mean it like that at all. But it's not a common approach within perhaps just veterinary medicine or even behavior medicine as they stand alone. A lot of veterinary practices wouldn't therefore necessarily have even a recommended trainer or behaviorist in the UK. So, you know, I do. I have a number of people that I know of across the country who I would work with. And that serves me very well. Do you have, say, a number of veterinarians or veterinary behaviorists, as you would call them there, that would work like you, mostly focused on behavior? Or is it uh, there's a long waiting line? So, you know, I find out here, you know, I see in the United States that there is a lot of wait to get in to see a veterinary behaviorist. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, there's a definite real need for more vets who have that strong education background in behavior. You know, that's definite. You know, we just we don't have enough of them right now. And yeah, there's a if, if you have a dog with a suspected possible medical underlying issue, you know, then you know, getting in to see someone, you know, a, a vet who understands behavior to get that animal seen can be tricky. Do you do a lot of consults with a client's veterinarian where you consult with the client's veterinarian or trainer, uh, or they have a veterinarian they're working with, and then that veterinarian is referred to you? I try. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I will be honest that, you know, sometimes Vets, I don't think we're still in a situation today where the majority of vets, I think, don't really understand the the possible implications of of, of a link between health and behaviour. Um, that's one of the reasons why I try to pro provide education, which can be for veterinarians and for behaviourists and for owners, because I just think actually when we look at the amount of research that we, we have had available, say, in the last five years or so, a lot of that is just it's not making it into the practical domain of veterinary surgery or to the, even the trainers or the owners. And, you know, so that's really what I've built my business around trying to do is to raise awareness of, of the science, the huge science that is in effect. We could call it veterinary behavioral medicine, veterinary behavior science. But, um, you know, there's still a lack of knowledge about it. And so actually a lot of veterinary practices still wouldn't necessarily work that closely with behaviorists. And behaviorists are always telling me that they struggle to, to get vets to understand their concerns. You know, I can think of three that I had last week. Behaviorists contact me to say, I think the dog has got pain or I think the dog has got gut disease. And actually um, that's contributing to its behavior problem. But the vets aren't interested. What do I do? So lots of parallels there between that. So, you know, being over to the IAABC conference in the UK a few, few years ago, uh, I was actually quite impressed with the progressive forward thinking. And maybe it was just because of that conference where everybody was together with, uh, you know, out of, out of many, but out of many conferences in different countries I've been to, I was, I was really impressed with how much the UK and the trainers and the veterinarians knew about behavior and how they collaborated with each other. Although it sounds like you share some similar struggles in that regard with communication between vets and the knowledge that's shared between all of those communities. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're a much smaller country than you, obviously, um, you know, but we do have some real differences in regions, you know, and, and approaches 
kind of cultural almost approaches within regions can vary considerably, even within veterinary medicine itself. You know, and, and sometimes that may be driven by the economics of an area. You know, maybe the, the clients can't afford certain things. Um, and so therefore the vets don't really offer them because otherwise it seems unfair to offer them something that they blatantly can't afford. You know, that I think that is changing a bit. But of course, we're always going to have those areas of kind of lower economic state. Um, and, you know, so depending on where you are within United Kingdom, you're going to get a, a different possibility of approaches. So let's talk for a moment about the regional differences a little bit more on how it relates to medication, uh, actually, and jump into this topic of medication. You know, what I see is in the cases I work with aggression, it seems like the cocktail of choice, or at least most veterinarians here will start with fluoxetine or, or Prozac or some other serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and then sometimes layer in something like trazodone or an SARI. And those two are kind of the most popular drugs of choice to work with aggression here. Are you seeing the same thing? And, and do you fo- kind of follow that same route when it comes to medication? I would agree. That's what I typically see. I think that um, actually the majority of uh, owners or, or behaviorists that contact me, their dogs aren't on medication. And they're often wondering whether medication may be appropriate, but their vet's saying that, that they don't know enough about it to make a prescription, actually. Um, but the dogs that I do see who come to me, a lot of the time, by the time they come to see me for an aggression, with an aggression problem, um, then they typically are, you know, most commonly on fluoxetine out of everything else. I don't see vets who don't have any previous behaviour training prescribing much else, to be totally honest. Um, you know, maybe occasionally I get dogs come to me, see me on something like um, a clomipramine, a tricyclic antidepressant. Um, yeah, that's probably about it. <laughs> we don't, I, I mean, I think there has been an increased awareness of using medicines to manage the aggressive dog who's aggressive at the vet. So there perhaps has been an increased awareness of trazodone, as an example, for being administered just before a vet visit. Um, but I wouldn't say that's common. But I don't see it being added in very often to fluoxetine unless that animal has been seen by a veterinary behaviourist. Yeah, I don't think so, so much, actually. I think that over the last, say, 10 years, there's been a huge increase in awareness of that. You know, and I think back to, you know, 20 plus years ago um, when I was first graduating, um, you know, ACE promazine was definitely the drug of choice for a dog that exhibited an undesired behavior, whether it was separation related problem or a noise behavior at fireworks or something like that. But, you know, I think we were kind of all parts of the globe were at that point then, weren't we really? Um, and then over kind of the last 10 years, there's been a shift away from using acepromazine in the UK. You still get the occasional practice that does it, but I would say it's actually, it's really quite rare now that typically for that sort of thing, if we were talking about, um, you know, fireworks phobias, which is probably the behaviour that the vets prescribe a medicine for without referring to a behaviourist, um, then then typically they're using um, some sort of benzodiazepine, you know, like you know, predominantly diazepam or, or alprazolam. Um, you know, so but that has changed, um, you know, and, and I, yeah, I don't see, so I don't see them being used that commonly inappropriately, to be honest. I mean, I guess personally, I might think, mm, I don't know why you've picked that particular drug, you know, but, um, you know, or, or, or do I really think that drug might help? Um, but I, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I can understand most of the time why people have, have made it to that sort of choice. Well, that's uh, good news that it's making that shift there. So here's a question for you. That's a that's a very big, it's very big, but a lot of listeners I'm sure will want to know more. Uh, what do you look for? Well, actually, I should rephrase that. If a client says, do you think my dog needs meds or do you think meds will help my dog? What do you look for? How do you navigate that conversation? It, yeah, it is, isn't it really? I mean, I guess the, the dogs that come to see me have almost always gone through the hands of at least one or two other behaviorists or trainers before they come to see me, always. And sometimes it can be five or ten different trainers or behaviorists before they come to see me. So 
I guess in a way there are some clients who are coming with an expectation that maybe medicine is going to be this magic panacea that's going to finally fix the problem. Um, I think, I don't know if it's perhaps the way I advertise myself, the connections I have with behaviorists, I'm not sure, but I, I, people don't tend to come to me thinking they're going to get given a drug though. And I think that is different than perhaps, um, you know, some vet behaviorists in the USA and maybe even some other vet behaviorists or vets in the UK where, where clients just turn up and they do think, although surely there's a drug that can fix that. So I don't know if it's just the way that kind of I've marketed myself and I explained before a consultation what I offer that makes people not turn up expecting a drug, really. But of course, if during the consultation think they, are, they are thinking that, then or I'm thinking that, that could be driven, you know, like you say, by a whole host of factors. Um, and, you know, sometimes I think you might end up, appropriate or not, using a medicine on a drug, perhaps more for the benefit of the owner than for the dog. But when I say that, what I mean is that, you know, some owners are so desperate for things to get better and they're so wedded in the thought that actually the only thing they haven't tried yet is medicine, that if we don't go down that route, then they're kind of ready to relinquish the dog. And of course, here, the most common way of that happening, if there's a problem like aggression, is just is euthanasia. You know, we do have, we're still in a situation where the majority of vets in the UK would you know, would agree to euthanasia of a dog who's shown even growling as a behaviour, you know, and, um, you know, that it's a difficult situation, isn't it? We can fully understand the kind of, you know, the human risk and, you know, the human welfare issues and, and also the dog welfare issues, you know, but, um, you know, I think that sometimes it's it often is a little bit more client-led, you know, that they feel they're just, they're desperate. And, and I, I don't, have a, an issue about that if I feel that the, the medicine's not going to have side effects that I think are going to be obviously detrimental to the animal. If I can see how using the medicine is actually going to benefit the client and the dog as a combination, you know, because if helping the client really feel more comfortable about something allows us to buy more appropriate time with the dog, then I think that can be a positive thing. You know, but yeah, I mean, generally it will come down to the history really and what has happened to the dog in the past, how effective have attempts at behaviour modification been before. And, uh, you know, we were chatting earlier and, you know, you mentioned right at the beginning about perhaps differences in between countries of using a more external approach. You know, how can we modify the immediate environment or certainly how can we train the dog to behave differently um, compared to a, a more intrinsic uh, combination model where we think about what's motivated behavior, how healthy is the dog, um, and then how does the environment and training impact on that individual. And um, if we, you know, if majority of dogs who come to see me still today have have received that extrinsic approach, you know, they have received maybe a bit of environmental change, but predominantly training, you know. And actually, that means when they come to see me, I'm normally good thinking. Mm, you know, I think there's other things that need to be addressed here. There's the underlying health of the animal um, and how that impacts on the brain. There is the environment itself, you know, and and then if we attempt that over the period of some weeks and we're not getting anywhere, maybe that's when medicine starts to become an appropriate issue. So let's look at the other side of the coin for a moment. If you have a client that's tried medication previously under the direction of another veterinarian, and it had either you know no effect or a paradoxical effect where it's made things worse. Uh, so if you actually if you think that that's that's a two part question, how do you navigate that conversation with that client? And what do you do when let's say a dog has been on an SSRI and then you've seen an increase in aggression? Or so how do you make changes in that particular type of case? Obviously, it is going to vary, isn't it, on the um, the owner. And I, you know, I'm a firm believer that uh, you know people have to be, um, you know, we, we work as a team, and the personality of an individual owner is very paramount to the way I might approach an individual case. You know, so that has to be part of it. I consider us to be at least a triad. There's me, there's the owner, there's the dog. We're all valid in this relationship. Um, but the client brings a lot to the table and their motivations and their understanding really impacts on 
where we might go with behavior modification. So it's a bit of a tricky one for me to answer directly, you know, as it were, but but I, it happens a lot, you know, and it happens um, perhaps most commonly because, like you say, they've come in on something like an SSRI, fluoxetine most commonly, and there's been no improvement at all. Some dogs I see and they've been on it for five years, eight years. Um, and, you know, the, the owner recalls there being some possible slight improvement at the beginning, which is why the dog's still on it. But the dog is come to see me because they're still showing quite marked aggression in, in certain contexts. Um, and or like you say, there have been some individuals that maybe the dog was put on it three months ago, six months ago. And actually the problems continued to worsen and not improve. And so that's kind of what I'm using, really. I will always go right back to basics with the client. You know, we'll start with why you're here today, you know, and you know what, what's driven you to make this appointment with me so I can understand their, you know, their immediate concerns. You know, and it will normally be, well, because there was a severe bite incident, you know, last week or last month or, you know, I'm just not seeing any improvement at all overall. But then once we've done that bit, I'm going to take them all right the way back to, well, let's go back through kind of, you know, what's happened leading up to this point. You know, how long have you had the dog? When did the problem start? Um, you know, so having done in the immediate period of time, we're going to rewind quite quickly and go back to where did it begin? So that we can kind of just try and build up this clearer picture of what actually has worked, what hasn't worked. And for me, quite often, there are a lot of jigsaw pieces that are obviously missing. You know, quite often there isn't enough focus been on the environment, stress reduction. There's been too much practicing of the behavior, you know, so that we don't get this uh, kind of weakening of the pathways in the brain that drive the behavior itself. Um, you know, and, um, and by the time we've kind of come to that sort of part of the discussion, you know, I, I take a history and it may take me half an hour, it may take me an hour. And then I'm going to actually give information back to the client and say, well, look, you know, based on everything you've just described, I believe this is what's happening, you know, with you and your dog. And this is what's driving the behavior inside your dog. Um, and actually, the medicines that your dog is on right now probably are not enough, you know, to rebalance that situation. You know, or I might say, actually, I'm strongly suspicious there's an underlying other problem in the body, like their gut is unhealthy or their skin is unhealthy. And then I'm going to have to explain why gut and skin health is relevant to, to aggressive behavior. Maybe, I mean, I see a number of dogs where I'm suspicious it's a focal seizure, as an example, um, or I believe there to be pain in their body. So the medicines in their own right, you know, they're not going to be able to get rid of that kind of that feeling of ill health for the animal and the imbalance that it creates in the chemicals in the brain. So, you know, that's kind of where I come at that discussion from, really. And I say, look, and we've tried it. And so, you know, it's not worked, you know, so that's a good thing to have ruled out. And it doesn't mean to say that drugs won't help, maybe a different dose, maybe a different drug, but we've got to consider all these other jigsaw puzzle pieces first. And that's why they come to see you, because they need help putting that jigsaw puzzle together. You know, and, you know, I'm not going to let you sur surpass that gut, brain, skin discussion that you had just mentioned. So talk more about that and how it relates to behavior meds or just aggression in general. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a fascinating subject. And obviously, it's something that we really still need to learn an awful lot more about specifically in veterinary medicine. But we have had, you know, a couple of, of really good papers or certainly interesting papers anyway, even if we think they might be preliminary papers um, in the last two years, um, uh, which have looked at the fact that the, the gut well, so the, uh, yeah, the gut of the animal, which houses a large community of living beings, which is predominantly bacteria, but there's also other things in there like fungi, um, like viruses. And uh, no one wants to say that word anymore, do they? And, uh, but there, there are all these living things in the gut and they are a community. And what we know is that they, you know, we finally are starting to understand that community of living things in the gut actually um, creates the neurochemicals or the, the neurotransmitters that we think about carrying message around the brain. So we've just been talking about a, a drug, serotonin, uh, sort of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which of course is having an effect on serotonin, which is a one of the main key messengers in our brain. But we know that 90% of the serotonin in the body and brain of an animal is in the gut. It's in the gut cells itself. 
And, you know, we know, including in human medicine, that if the gut is unhealthy, then those individuals tend to suffer with behavioural disorders that are often linked with lowered serotonin activity. So anxiety disorders, um, irritability, sleep disorders, um, you know, and, and irritability, of course, also aggression. So we've had, you know, growing amounts of evidence in a variety of species, including the human, but now also in the dog itself, to link changes in that community of bugs, uh, you know, different ratios of different bacteria that should be there, um, you know, or, or depression in total amount of bacteria compared to other things in the gut, impacting on behavioural change. You know, so the papers suggesting that dogs who have, uh, you know, Dogs who show aggressive, aggressive behaviours have a different microbiome community than dogs who don't show aggressive behaviours. Now, we need to understand and unravel that a little bit more. Um, and uh, Mondo last year published a paper, Mondo and colleagues published a paper looking at how the gut microbiome actually seems to influence not just aggression, but also phobias as well. So you know, in the dog specifically. So. We definitely need to understand more about it within the dog. We definitely do not have all the answers. But what we do know is that there is a constant communication between the gut and the brain. And what going, what is going on in the gut is very much influencing the brain to kind of release, produce, manage its chemicals in a different way. And that, no doubt, drives behavioral change in, in, you know, with a, you know, a great amount of power, did I say, really. And so when we think about medications, perhaps we're at a point now, I think, in, in human psychopharmacology, where we're starting to acknowledge that actually these medications may, may be crossing the blood-brain barrier and getting into the brain and having an effect directly on you know, the, the synapse and the, and the chemicals that are in between those, those individual brain cells. But actually, it may also be happening because those drugs are having an effect on the community of bugs that live in the gut. And therefore, it's influencing that constant telephone conversation that's going on between those two structures. And then, just to kind of complicate things further, since 2016, um, we've got had a growing amount of evidence, including in the dog, that the mic there is a microbiome that's slightly different that lives on our skin. And the microbiome that's on our skin, and the you know all the bugs that live there, they're also communicating to the gut and to the brain. And so probably in the last three to five years, we, we'd started to talk more commonly about the gut-brain axis. But now it's starting to be suggested we should be talking about the gut-skin-brain axis because it's just, it's all part of the same thing. It's the same chemistry and, you know, it's, it, that's being influenced by these different bugs. And, and I think that's a very important part of the jigsaw puzzle that we need to start considering in these animals. So, you know, I have to ask you the next question. I'm sure many of the listeners are wondering a lot uh, about nutrition and how at least how much research have you seen on that topic related to what we were just talking about? And, you know, because there's some research out there and some older research on nutrition and aggression. But what do you what have you seen on this topic in mind with the microbiome topic? Not enough. Really, I mean, interestingly, we've just got a brand new paper come out this year and some work from last year looking at the development of the microbiome in the puppy um, and trying to work out how what influences that uh, because that's where it's starting you know that's our founding population really and how much does that influence the the long-term community of bugs uh, and therefore how does that actually influence the long-term development of behavior in an individual and we know that the founding population of the gut in dogs as well as it is in humans um, comes from the vagina of the mother, you know, which because of the, the birthing process, um, but also from the placenta. The placenta has bugs in it too. So there's actually a, a colonization of the uh, of the gut already prior to the birthing process. So there's a really nice study looking at um, kind of what bugs were already present in puppies when they were born, whether they were born by cesarean section or whether they were born vaginally. And, um, you know, and then what happens to them individually, basically. And at the moment, that's kind of been a little bit more focused on kind of weight gain and that immediate post-birth situation. But, but we are acknowledging that the microbiome is different 
So if you were born by cesarean section, um, how might that actually influence you in the long term compared to if you were born vaginally? And on top of that, the very importance is what bugs did your mum have to populate your gut in the first place? And that is very much influenced by stress. So if the mum is stressed in pregnancy, then that affects the biome that she has in her placenta and in her vagina. And therefore, that has a, a knock-on effect on the puppies too. So that founding population is probably going to be really important. But we need a lot more kind of research about, about that, to be honest, moving forward. Um, and yeah, when it comes to diet, that's that's what that's what you asked. So I will get there, I promise. Um, but you know, then obviously there's going to perhaps be a difference, and this needs further research between formula-fed puppies and uh, breastfed puppies. You know, so um, now I appreciate that most puppies, of course, are being uh, breastfed by their mothers, but for how long? You know, we have puppies that are routinely being taken away from their mothers between the weeks of four and six because a lot of breeders perceive that they need to be on solid food, totally ready to move into their new home by week eight. So it's not uncommon in a lot of countries across the world. I mean, I teach, you know, kind of very multinationally. So I'm used to these discussions in different countries about different cultures. But, you know, all the breeders I speak to, you know, yes, of course, we get some who are leaving the puppies with mum till week 10 or week 12, but they're very much in the minority. The majority of breeders are still actually taking the puppies away around about week six and some organisations and breeders a bit earlier than that. And so how much does that influence the microbiome of the puppies in the longer term? You know, because we've got, you know, the, the, that microbiome is being constantly added to as the puppies suck because they're consuming, in effect, bacteria from the skin of the mother, but also through the milk itself. That's unpasteurized milk. Um, you know, and how healthy she is, you know, what she's kind of eating and her stress levels and all those things are going to actually influence, you know, what's going on in them and how long they take that for. You know, and we know with the free ranging studies and we've got some really good data on this, that puppies continue to, to, to um, drink their mother's milk, albeit in, of course, decreasing amounts until they're around about 13 weeks of age you know that's the normal weaning age of the of the puppy is this when we say weaning we've got to be careful weaning meaning to move from milk feeding to solid feeding because when we talk about weaning quite often in a veterinary community or in a pet ownership community we often refer to the breakdown of attachment between a mother and puppy because we're going to move the animal somewhere else and they're not the same thing you know, weaning is about moving from a milk feed, you know, diet, milk, milk fed diet to, to a solid diet. And of course, when we see that happening in the histogram, you know, that normal behavior repertoire of the free ranging dog, then that initial shift is also made through predominantly through regurgitation. And uh, Pongratz produced some really nice work um, in 2019, it's not very long ago at all, looking at how many um, adult pet dogs regurgitate for their offspring. Um, fascinating to see how many mothers and unrelated adult dogs who lived in the household for the puppies actually regurgitated for the puppies um, across a whole wide range of breeds. I can't remember now off the top of my head how many breeds were on their list, but I think 30 something, something like that. So it's not just a breed specific thing either. And so, of course, partially digested food, food that's got some of the microbiome, perhaps from the stomach in it, uh, maybe even from the gut, maybe a little bit of backflow, certainly the saliva. All those things would be the initial population, um, you know, of, of the gut in terms of solid food. So when we start thinking about, you know, should I feed raw food? Should I feed dry food? Should it be 70 percent protein? You know, I think sometimes we're just we're looking in the wrong place. You know, we're asking some of the wrong questions. And, and it's not that we shouldn't ask those questions at all, but we've got to ask some other questions as well. What's the founding population of the gut? How do we make the gut healthy to start with? You know, and, and then how do we follow that through with a diet? And, and when we get to that following it through thing, this is also new that we haven't got any real data on that. We know the microbiome of dogs that are fed raw is different to the microbiome of dogs that are fed cooked. You know, because obviously you'll get things like more, more salmonella, more campylobacter, more E. coli um, in the gut of the raw fed dog. And of course, you know, that raises some biohazard kind of concerns in its own right. 
um, to do with you know what's in the poo when it exits the dog and how do we handle that in, in our communities in our human communities um, but but in terms of you know kind of how does that the diet influence the microbiome to influence behavior we're going to have to find out more all right so i i need a moment to put my uh, brain back together because it just exploded uh, there's just so many things to unpack there you know the thing i was i was really thinking about too, is just how much human intervention has screwed up a lot of dogs and contributed to behavior issues and what we've what we've done so so many ways from what you were describing the processes of the puppies and even in the topic of let's say in utero pregnancy and stress and in utero and the hormones involved there and the developments of puppies it's just you know it makes me really sad about how much human intervention has really caused a lot of these behavior issues and maybe not in a direct way, but indirect way over the way we've interacted and raised dogs in our cultures. And I think it's interesting, actually, just literally, I don't know what COVID-19 has done to researchers and publishing papers, but there has been an explosion of papers come out in the last year, um, you know, or so. And I'll mention it at the end, but I, I recently um, launched a, my first puppy course I've done a lot of online education, but, um, you know, I, I was asked by um, one of my Belgian hosts, a lady um, called Else, who runs Free Dogs in Belgium. Um, she asked me some time ago, would I consider creating a puppy course for, for a mixture of owners, breeders and professionals? And, um, and so we actually just started that a few months ago. And when I was putting together the kind of final details of it at the beginning of this year, I was like every single day having to read five or 10 new papers because there's just been an explosion. There really has. And what's happened, I think one of the things that's very notable to me, and I'm, and I'm really pleased to see it, but absolutely it can be quite emotive, um, is we're finally starting to take the focus off of when we think about dogs bonding with humans, you know, and that's been so much research ever since, you know, Scott and Fuller back in the 60s, you know, all this kind of when's the optimal time for the puppy to leave the mother so that we bond it to the human, on them, should I say, to the human. And, you know, finally, just in the last year, 18 months, we've started to get some lovely papers that are saying, well, hang on a minute, we're asking the wrong question. What we should be saying is, how much does the bond between the puppy and the mother and the puppy and the other puppies influence that puppy's behavior? Yeah. And and actually, let's stop worrying about the focus about bonding with humans. I mean, it's not forget it. Clearly, we want you know, that's what we've got them for. You know, we've got them to have a bond with them. There are huge amounts of evidence that suggesting that if we leave them with their mother for longer, they're actually much better off. Um, it was, I think, 2017, but because it was cat related kind of. It snuck along without too many people noticing. But this paper got published in 2017 looking at cats that showed that if puppy, if no, I say I'm on dogs, but if, if kittens stayed with their mothers um, until 14 weeks of age, they showed phenomenally lower levels of aggression towards people than if they moved into the home before 14 weeks of age. And also um, in, within that same study, they found that kittens that stayed for at least 12 weeks of age were far less likely to develop other abnormal behaviours um, like stereotypies, compulsive disorders, excessive grooming, those sorts of things. And that's really interesting because if we look at the behaviour repertoire of the cat, kittens typically are actually kind of uh, becoming more independent quicker than, than dogs are. You know, dogs do seem to, to stay dependent on their parents for a much longer period of time that, than kittens do. But actually, but making sure that the kittens stayed with their mother for a longer period of time had a real significant effect on, on the aggression. And of course, that will be multifactorial. You know, maybe they will have breastfed for longer. The diet may have been different. Um, there's observational learning around the mother, um, you know, and attachment theory and what that does to the oxytocin. And I think, you know, obviously, again, another huge area of science more recently has been the value of oxytocin as a hormone and chemical in the brain and how that is a, a pretty major anti-aggression chemical, certainly from a social kind of aggression, you know, when we're talking about aggression towards same species or perhaps humans. And, you know, oxytocin circuitry is all developed, you know, by your initial bonding with your mother. So if you break that down... Um, then how are you going to get normal brain circuitry development, normal oxytocin that can function in life to allow this individual to be non-aggressive in social context? You know, so 
so much exciting stuff and and it's so much deeper than you know than we ever perhaps would have thought about and and finally someone's highlighting actually why don't we ask these questions about what's the role of the bond between the mother and the puppy and how would it normally develop and and how might that influence their behavior in the long term and of course we understand that you know if we want them to bond with us and we want them to kind of be okay with living in a house and all the stimuli that come with that you know the tv and the the vacuum cleaner and going in a car and all that stuff, then they need exposure to that. Of course, no one's trying to say that we, we're dropping habituation or socialization programs in the first 12 weeks because they just need to stay with mum. You know, a nice study showed that puppies that live um, outside of a home, so sort of in a, a yard or a barn or a stable, struggled far more behaviorally, you know, in family homes than the puppies that were raised, at, you know, inside a home. You know, so just because of early exposure to those stimuli so so lots of things to think about yes my brain is swirling in with thoughts again uh as a behavior community we focus on you know all that all important you know i'm putting up big air quotes here that eight to 12 weeks of you know socialization 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 and get the dogs exposed and habituated to many different things in that eight to 12 week or eight to eight to 16 week time frame depending on who you talk to and there hasn't been a lot of focus on pre eight weeks so what happens before eight weeks because it's it's trainers and consultants and people working on behavior we'd often don't have much influence in that pre eight week period but perhaps we should be leaning more of our influence towards that direction. You know, the other thing I was thinking too is that in pandemic times, the demand for puppies has been untold of in history. And when with demand and with commercialized puppy type of operations, uh, you're seeing puppies go on, at least in my experience, uh, a bit earlier, sooner than we'd like to see at six or seven weeks. Uh, So I'm seeing dogs or puppies being purchased and adopted. And you have to think about the long-term impact and that what what kind of impact that's going to have well yeah and obviously frank frank mcmillan you know has, has published quite a lot of data on that you know the the concerns about the puppies that come from commercial outlets you know and and again it is multifactorial and it's part some of it's to do with how long they stay with mum and some of it's to do with what stimuli and some of it of course will be genetics you know you know what kind of stock are we actually selecting for in those outlets you know those commercial settings but but, you know, he's published quite a few papers, you know, highlighting that, you know, that that sort of commercial um, setup is detrimental to the long term behavior of the dog, including the development of aggression. And yet, you know, you know, people, there's a market, isn't there? So people want these puppies and, you know, and everyone wants a puppy when it's young because it's cute, you know. And so trying to persuade people that actually it would be better if they want a dog, you know, to, to do what they want it to do when it's one year old, two year old five-year-old and that it would be better if it stayed with mum for longer and no one really wants to listen because everyone wants the cute puppy don't they they want the baby effect but you know then that really bothers me as as a behaviorist because if if that's what I sometimes call myself but someone with behavioral interest because you know when when we look at what mum does and, and the emotional responsiveness that she would have to her puppies and how she takes care of them and and how the group gets involved in that you know when she's part of a, of a social group as she would normally be um, and then we take them home and it's all very lovely in the daytime but then at night time no no go in your crate in the kitchen you know sleep by yourself you know maybe this is a nice link to the sleep thing <laughs> but you know, but now sleep by yourself. And so like you say, some of these puppies are six weeks old, seven weeks old, eight weeks old. They can't still thermoregulate properly. You know, they get cold really easily. Normally they'd be sleeping on mum between litter mates, you know, and how that actually influences the development of their whole bodies and brains. You know, so, you know, yeah, we really, really do need to be thinking more about that kind of preventative element, I think, of aggression rather than just trying to fix it later. As, as we know, you know, fixing it later is, you know, uh, with a whole host of, of, of issues. It's making me reminisce about some of the conversations I've had with some of the other guests on the show, such as Sue Sternberg or Trish McMillan, who've brought up the point of thinking about where we're getting our dogs from in, in society and thinking a little deeper into that. I mean, that can be, again, a whole conversation on its own, but just as a side note for the listeners to think about when we're looking at, 
you know, where we are getting our dogs, thinking about how we're spaying and neutering all of the good population out of society and getting dogs from sources that may be uh, going to create issues in the long run. So, so let's shift here anyways. Let's, we've been discussing focusing on the internal part of the behavior. So we've talked plenty about times about the external environment in many other episodes, but let's segue to that. We were just talking about sleep and why that's so important. So let's talk, talk more about that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, obviously it's funny, isn't it, to think about sleep as a behavior because we often think we're not doing anything, you know, but, but sleep is an absolutely crucial activity, even if we think of it as a lack of activity, but it's an absolutely crucial part of, of the, of, you know, of, of life. We, we can't sleep, we can't live without sleep. You can't go on sleep deprivation and actually, you know, unpleasant scientific studies have been done, including on the dog, which have shown that if you prevent, uh, you know, animals, including the dog from, from sleep, then they die really quickly and they die faster than if you starve them. You know, if you take, if you don't feed a dog, um, you know, and unfortunately I work as a legal expert witness from time to time. Okay. So, you know, I get the unpleasantness of, of seeing, you know, neglect cases for a whole variety of reasons, as well as spending time in puppy farms as well. Um, but the, you know, when you look at a dog who perhaps has had all or pretty much nothing to eat, maybe they've, their owner has died, you know, and they nobody knew about them and they were locked in that flat for maybe three weeks. Um, and, you know, they literally they started off the first few days being able to scavenge what they could off the counters and et cetera. But obviously they, they ran out of food. They're still alive by week three. Whereas, you know, the research has shown us that if you take an adult dog and sort of totally deprive them of sleep in the way that you're totally depriving that dog of food, then they'd be dead by day 10. You know, and, and research showed on puppies, you know, that uh, when they were several weeks old, maybe and a little bit older, that if you deprive them totally of sleep, they, they died by day four or day five. You know, so, so sleep is an absolutely crucial part of our day-to-day kind of a balance, really, of our body and our brain tissue. And, of course, total sleep deprivation is a rarity, of course. But then lots of studies have looked at what we call sleep fragmentation, you know, or, or sleep deprivation or, or sleep reductions, perhaps is a better term, sleep, sleep reductions where we know perhaps what might be ideal for an individual within that species, but then we're not getting, you know, quite that amount. Maybe we're getting three quarters or 80% of that. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had, again, some nice new research, literally just published in the last, well, one, one paper's not even out, it's just about to be published, um, looking at causes of sleep fragmentation and sleep reductions in the pet dog which include uh, disorders like sleep apnea, you know, where we've got brachycephalic dogs in particular, you know, the, the short-faced dogs, um, because they have overlong soft palates and the, and the kind of slight abnormalities of their upper airways, that when they sleep, um, like some people, um, they actually go into these phases where they can't get enough oxygen, they actually stop breathing. And because they stop breathing, they wake themselves up. And so actually sleep apnea has been shown to be a significant cause of reduction of sleep patterns in the pet dog. Just as one example, there, there are plenty of other medical disorders that contribute to that as well. So, you know, when we think about why, kind of it can all get a little bit complicated, but lots of things happen when we're sleeping, both in our brain, and both in our bodies. And again, unsurprisingly, sleep has an impact on our gut microbiota. So it may well be that some of the changes are, are coming from there. Sleep, uh, a lack of sleep in, influences our stress patterns, our stress pathways in the brain. So they become more reactive. We end up with more stress chemistry when we don't get enough sleep. And there are other kind of chemicals and brain electrical activities that change as well. You know, when we go into what's the most common type of sleep, what we call slow wave sleep, we end up with this electrical activity that's, that is, as it describes, real slow waves, delta activity. Um, and, you know, at that point, we have a, because we have so much reduced electrical activity in the brain and we're not using as much energy in the brain, it means we can afford to do other things in the body to repair certain things, so if, which would include the microbiota and the gut, you know, tissue having to be, to be uh, kind of boosted and recharged. So if that's not happening, and if we're if we're dropping out amounts of sleep, then we may get unhealthier guts or, or certainly microbiota, 
Um, and we're also going to get changes in our brain electricity, because if you don't get those kind of, for want of a better phrase, and I know there's some neurophysiologists will listen and they'll cringe a little bit, but let's call it a time out for the brain. If we don't get that time out, um, then in effect, we're overstimulating our brain all of the time. And, and that can then potentially be an issue in its own right. And serotonin's involved in this process, um, you know, along with other, you know, plenty of other chemicals, GABA, our main calming chemical, which does control all that brain electricity in the first place. You know, so we can start to get potentially abnormalities in some of the brain chemistry and the brain function, as well as the body. Sugar is very much affected. I suspect most of us can relate to the fact if you if you go one or two nights without having a good night's sleep, you get a lot hungrier. So plenty of research, which also shows us you know, what role sleep plays on on sugar balancing. You know, we call that technically glucose homeostasis, but the ability to balance our sugar levels. And of course, we know that aggression can be worse when our sugar levels are out of balance. You know, if you if you're hungry and your tissues think they haven't got enough sugar, then, you know, rather than being able to cope with a frustrating situation or a disappointing situation, we don't. We lash out. And. So sleep's involved in so many ways in terms of potentially aggressive, you know, impacts on aggressive behavior that it just cannot be underestimated. Do you think that's one of the reasons we're seeing, at least anecdotally, and for my students especially, they've seen a tremendous increase in the amount of aggression cases, especially with your owner-directed aggression cases. Do you think sleep deprivation is part of that? You know, because the kids are home from school, the adults are home, not working. And the dogs are being disturbed all the time and not getting that sleep during the day that they previously would have gotten? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And um, and I don't I don't know. And I think every household is going to be a little bit different. But, you know, uh, Rachel Kinsman produced this paper last year about um, about sleep in the dog. And she would say herself, it's not a perfect study. It's an owner based questionnaire. So, of course, you know, you know, auto owners know, <laughs> you know, but in terms of making kind of, you know, really detailed, appropriate observations, it can be hard to look at a dog from a distance and know, is that dog actually asleep or is that dog resting? Is that dog withdrawn? So, you know, there, there are some kind of flaws a bit to the data, but one of the real remarkable findings that she, she and her colleagues reported was that where dogs had access, to a social figure in the house and, and predominantly that was another human because obviously most dogs do live in a household by themselves certainly in the UK which is where the study was done um, where they had access to a social figure predominantly a human 86% of them chose to sleep in the proximity of that individual we know dogs are social sleepers so this concept that they'll sleep better when the house is quiet and nobody's around that's pretty flawed, isn't it, actually, when we stop and think about it. And when we look at separation-related problems, you know, we've got studies suggesting that separation-related problems might exist in at least 50% of dogs, potentially. But because of quite a lot of them are uh, showing behaviours that are withdrawn, almost depressive-like states when the owner's away, rather than howling and destroying, etc., that we're missing, you know, a fair percentage of those separation-related problems. But that withdrawn, depressed dog, um, you know, in a depressed state, perhaps is the more appropriate phrase to say it, when the owner's away, may appear to be resting or sleeping, but isn't necessarily undergoing any form of sleep pattern. So I totally agree. You know, I mean, I know what our household was like during lockdown. I have a young child. We've got two dogs, you know, me and my husband are home, the child's home, the dogs are home. Um, you know, we could totally appreciate, particularly if you've got two children, three children, and you know, everyone's shouting about using the printer and trying to do whatever they're doing, that that can be a really disruptive environment for the dog. But actually, in, in comparison to the fact that, that, you know, three months earlier, the dog was being left for eight hours by themselves all day while everyone was at work and everyone was at school, you know, is the dog in a better or worse place in terms of sleep? It's probably very individual, isn't it? And whether that dog can, can kind of cope and switch off or not, and it will depend on the behaviour of the adults and the children, how much the dog is actually being physically disturbed. Um, it's a really, really interesting point, and I think clearly, like everything, it's probably multifactorial. I think people were really stressed, aren't they, around COVID, and particularly in lockdown periods, and we know that dogs, um, you know, through the pheromones that stress people give off, and also, of course, our, our facial expressions, our body language, um, you know, of course, that is going to hugely impact on the dog itself. So 
you know, perhaps it's more the behavior of, of the humans affecting the kind of reactivity and stress of the dog rather than, you know, the, the lack of sleeping opportunities itself. You know, if maybe those people could sit down quietly to do their work from home, um, you know, and they're learning from home and the dog could actually lie next to them on the sofa, the dog's probably in a better position to get more sleep than they were when everybody was out of the house, arguably. So let's shift to the opposite side of the coin. We talked about sleep and the lack of, but what about arousal? A lot of the conversation, it's been great in the behavior community about FAS or fear, anxiety, and stress, which is wonderful Wonderful because there's a lot more understanding of that. But if we look at some of the other underlying emotions and factors that can contribute to aggression or factors we're assessing for aggression, frustration being one of them, arousal uh, could be another. We talked about pain. Uh, we haven't talked much about arousal in the community or on the show, so I'd love to hear thoughts on that in its contributions to aggression. Yeah, well, when we think about... Um... You know, I'm going to do a very quick potted view myself of what drives aggression as a kind of a baseline within the brain, really. Um, you know, we have a kind of core, aggress almost aggressive circuitry, you know, and, and realistically we kind of recognize two main circuits, one that is related to predatory behaviors and one that is related to kind of fear-based or defensive behaviors. Um, and, you know, the uh, they are... Are located um, in the middle of the brain, right in the middle of the brain. And we think about the middle of the brain, the structures that are in there, the behaviors that that that, that tissue kind of creates, because our, our behavior is dictated by our brain, whether we like it or not, but you know, behavior is is created within our brain tissue. And the middle of the brain is a kind of involuntary kind of reflex center, really. And it's that forebrain, you know, the, the front of the brain, that kind of grey matter that we often talk about it, you know, that we think of looking at the brain, which has these other kind of elements. And some of them are still unconscious involuntary, but obviously we tend to think of it as more the kind of conscious brain. Um, you know, it's difficult to know fully. And I think we're, we're reevaluating that in science all the time. But obviously different parts of the brain have kind of different functions. And when we think about aggression, and we think about aggression quite often being predominantly driven by reflexes within certain uh, specific pathways like predatory pathways or within our um, emotional senses, you know, whether, whatever emotion it is that kind of uh, drives that, predominantly fear, but, uh, and I'll come back to why frustration and fear might be linked in a moment, that the middle of the brain is driving that. And then we have this kind of outer core of the brain, which is uh, kind of inputting into that. And it has what we might call a hierarchy of control. It recognizes that the middle of the brain is driving this behavior, but then it's thinking, you know, obviously to itself in some magical way, um, hmm, should we apply the brakes to this? You know, we, we should perhaps modify the way that that behavior is coming out in terms of what the body is actually doing. So, we might uh, apply the brake a little bit and maybe it'll be less intense behavior and it won't last as long. Or maybe we fully apply the brake and we don't show it at all. And one of the things that tends to happen when we're in an aroused state, you know, when we talk about arousal, we're predominantly talking about um, kind of catecholamines, which are these chemicals in our, that are produced in our brain and in our bloodstream, um, like noradrenaline and adrenaline. So when we're in an aroused state and, and we're entering, you know, within milliseconds, actually, the increasing amount of those chemicals, what we know is it does create a shift for the brain to be more driven to the reflex involuntary behaviors dictated by the midbrain. Because from an evolutionary point of view, when you're in it, if you're moving faster and everything around you is happening quicker, react now, think later. You know, so when we're in an aroused state and whether that's in a positively aroused state, like I've just been playing with my another dog in the park and having a wonderful, overexciting time. Or I've just been running away from a dog in the park who was really, really scary. Both of those situations cause an increase in arousal chemistry, predominantly uh, dopamine in our, our movement based circuits and adrenaline and noradrenaline in both our brain and in the bloodstream to make everything move faster. But the impact of those move faster chemistry is that we end up relying in that moment on our reflex actions rather than on the input from, you know, the front brain, which is saying, whoa, hang on, maybe this isn't, you know, the best way forward. 
we lose that kind of risk assessment that our brain would be making, you know, the kind of rationality, um, you know, and and that's a big problem, whether we're in a positive aroused state or a negative aroused state. You know, of course, positive arousal has its benefits and so does negative arousal. You know, those stress chem- chemicals or arousal chemicals are there for good reason. They're there to make us be able to move our body faster. Um, and they help us make memories stronger as well. You know, acute stress, very well shown, you know, elevated neuroadrenaline, adrenaline, very well shown dogs to, to enhance memory making. We've got some nice studies that show that if you want a dog to learn a new task, that having a nice kind of playful game with them at the end of the task, um, you know, might actually really enhance their, their ability to remember that task learning because the game has just released some adrenaline. And so that's a really useful thing to have, isn't it? And, you know, but of, but the difficulty is if we're getting into that state with an individual who's perhaps already got a greater tendency to exhibit aggression as a behaviour because they're out of balance in their body and brain, you know, with their gut brain axis or because they're not getting enough sugars appropriately or because they're in pain or they're unwell. Or because they've been practicing that behavior for a long time. You know, practicing a behavior makes pathways stronger in the brain. You know, we call that long-term potentiation. And if they have been strengthening those pathways, you know, I say to, um, you know, a lot of my students and to my clients that it's like walking a footpath across a grassy field. You know, the more you walk it, the stronger the pathway becomes. And it becomes harder and harder, really, for you to take an alternative path because there's a lot of energy to push your way through the long grass on either side. So the more you walk a path, the stronger that path becomes and it becomes the path of least resistance, we say. And, and of course, that's exactly what happens structurally in the brain if you practice and practice a behavior over and over again, whether it's a conscious behavior or an involuntary behavior. So a whole combination of those factors, an individual who has a tendency because of you know, strengthen pathways or, you know, pain, disease, you know, influences in terms of, you know, being out of balance in the gut brain axis, perhaps, you know, now is in a state of, of arousal, whether it's positive or negative, we're kind of just creating a shift towards them being more likely to offer that undesired behavior. Because if something goes wrong in the moment, you know, you've got your really excited, positively aroused dog, but then a new dog appears on the scene who they've never seen before, they just attack. You know, rather than if they weren't in that highly aroused state, you know, then they probably perhaps would have had to lip licked and tried to walk away. But in the moment, they kind of can't control themselves because they're being driven by this involuntary uh, kind of reaction from the middle of the brain to self-defend. You know, so, yeah, is that that's probably my take on arousal. <laughs> That's a really excellent take. You know, the analogy or, or graph I use for some of my students is looking at the old Yerkes Dodson war the, the graph that's way back from i think 1908 and it's just um you know in the area where you're at you're seeing undesirable decisions or impaired cognitive processes depending on where you're landing in that curve of arousal so it's like the antecedents you're throwing at a, a dart in that range of arousal when it starts to the impaired decision making processes are happen and so so sometimes you're seeing uh, undesirable behavior surface, but you've, uh, you know, it's it's part of that arousal factor where they're going to have a more difficult time making the choices that are desirable for us in that particular context. So you've sufficiently fried my brain with this podcast episode. I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy this one. Where can people find you and learn more about the brilliant conversation that we've had on topics that we've been talking about? Um, the best place to find me really is on Facebook. Um, I'm not a, um, I, I'm old enough and, and just bad enough behaved that I haven't expanded um, into, you know, websites, etc. It's, uh, you know, it's busy sometimes, you know, trying to shuffle a clinical life and a behavioral life and, a, and an expert witness life and being a parent. So um, Facebook is the best place to find me. Um, you'll find me at, uh, um, at my, my page called Understand Animals. Um, and that's the best place. And I typically keep on there, you know, intermittently pinned posts with events that are coming up or, you know, publish, you know, show the new publications and discuss what they may mean for us with our interactions with, with predominantly, it's predominantly dog orientated page, but, you know, I cover other species too. Um, and then I also have a, 
a book which I'm co-authoring some chapters of, which should be out for publication later this year, which is going to be edited by a lady called Suzanne Rogers. And it's called Canine Behaviour in Mind. Um, and that's basically it's got a, quite a, a lovely lineup of different authors, um, including myself, who are exploring kind of the different ways we interact with dogs, you know, through activities, through taking them to the vets, um, you know, through different life stages um, and, and, and training. And then looking how we can be behaviorally mindful when we, when we get to, to kind of that modality, that activity, that service. Um, so, you know, it should be, a, should be an interesting book. I will put that at the top of my shopping list for sure. And we'll be sure to promote that once it comes out. Amber, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. You've been brilliant. I'm sure this will get lots and lots of wonderful reviews. So thank you again for joining me. Well, no, thank you very much for hosting me. It's a, it's a pleasure, as you could tell, for me to just chat about, about behavior and aggression. So I'm really grateful for you giving me that platform. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me for the bitey end of the dog. If you like the show, please feel free to subscribe, share, and give a rating. And hop on over to aggressivedog.com or the looseleashacademy.com for more information about webinars, courses, and conferences, all dedicated to helping dogs with aggression issues. And don't forget, the Aggression in Dogs conference will be happening from October 22nd to 24th with 12 amazing speakers, all streaming from a television studio in Chicago. It's going to be a truly unique event in 2021.